Welcome and thank you for joining us. I'm Pastor Michael Petit and you're listening to Sun, Salt, and Light Radio, where we want you to know the sun, S-O-N, and be the salt and the light in this world, to be Christ-like. This is a radio ministry sponsored by our church at Calvary Chapel Divine Texas. We meet at the VFW 3966. It's located at 211 West College Avenue, right next to the post office where the big white building there. We have services at 10 a.m. on Sunday and also on Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. We would love for you to come out and join us. We have children's ministry available for both. If you want to get more information on the church, you can simply do that by going to calvarydivine.org. That's calvarydivine.org. Let's go ahead and get into today's teaching. So I've titled this, and it, it's actually the three points of the lesson also, but I've titled this The Lame, The Lost, and The Laborers. Our first point being the lame, that uh, coincides with Matthew 9, verse 35. And their second point, the lost, that's Matthew verse 36 out of chapter 9 here. And then our third point, the laborers. And that's Matthew 9, 37 through 38. So I know we have read the verses, but before we begin our study, let us review a little bit from chapter 7, beginning at verse 28. I want to go through this with you to showcase the needs of the people, the compassion of Jesus, and the plentiful ripe harvest. Let us begin our summary, beginning with chapter 7, verse 28. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 reads, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus knew the word. He knew the power of the word. He believed in the word. Amen. He is the word. He's the living word. Something, this is something that the scribes didn't know. They, they didn't do this. They didn't practice the power of the word in their lives. They didn't apply it to their lives. The scribes didn't do this, at least not in all these categories. They may have known the word because they were essentially like lawyers of the word, right? But they didn't believe in the word. They didn't believe in the power of the word. They didn't apply the word to their lives. They just, you know, wrote it and copied and copied and copied. And, and they could tell you, where was that? But they didn't apply that word to their lives. And so you have Jesus come in and he's teaching with authority. He has that authority because he is the author and finisher. Amen. He is the author. He knows how the story goes. He knows how it begins. He knows how it ends. And he knows every detail in between. And that's the authority that, te- that Jesus was teaching with. So coming to us, we must know the word. And not like a parrot, ah, John 3.16, you know, not like a parrot just repeating it over and over. There's no point to that. There's no point to that. Believe in the word. We must know the word. We must know the power of the word. And we must believe in the word. I know that's easier said than done when we come into the trials and tribulations of this life. When things are going well, we can say, oh, yeah, I I believe in the word. I trust in the word. But when death hits us, when sickness hits us, when bills hit us, when something comes our way, do we apply that word? 
I hope so. I believe we do. Maybe we'll get rocked a little bit, and that's not the first thing we run to. But eventually, when we regain our senses, we come back. And we're like, okay, yeah, okay, Lord, yes. I trust in your word. You have never failed me before, and you never will. Okay, yes, Father, I trust in what your word says and what the promises of your word say, yes. And we come back to the word. We need to come back to the word. We need to know the word. We need to believe in the power of the word. And we need to apply that word to our lives. So as we share the gospel, we must believe in it in this manner. We must teach it in this manner. It must first be real to us. It must first be true to us. We must first have allowed its power to work in us. That's true of anything. You're not going to go sell something if you don't know anything about it. You're not going to go try to give someone something and have them buy it or, 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 or believe in it if you haven't first tried it or applied it. And that's the gospel. It's the word of God. We must first have come and allowed God to do a work in us. The work that God has done in my life is amazing. I don't have time to go into my testimony. And I don't have enough tissue either. But God, it's amazing what he's done. Not only in my life, but in my wife's life. In our marriage, in our family. And so, do I believe in this word? Oh, yeah. Do I believe in our God? Oh, yeah. Do I believe in the power of his word? Oh, I certainly do. And so when I say I'm going to pray for you or you ask for prayer and we pray together, trust me, we will pray. And I will earnestly mean that prayer. I'm not lifting myself up. I'm just saying I know the God that I'm praying to. And that's what we need to know. We need to have this in place. We need to believe in this word. We must believe in the power of the word. We must apply it to our lives. And as we share the gospel, this has to be part of it. If I go and share the gospel and I'm just, yeah, 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 okay, uh, yeah, uh, okay. And then I'm out of there. People are going to be like, this dude, he was in a rush just to get out of here. His heart wasn't even here. His mind wasn't even here. His heart wasn't even in it. It must be first true to us. We must first have allowed his power to work in us. And Jesus is always, is our perfect example of this. That's why he taught with authority. In the Greek, it is the word exousia, meaning the ability or strength with which one is endued, which he either possesses or exercises. Jesus possesses that authority and he puts it into practice. He exercises it. So let's continue with our summary of the preceding chapter and verses to our text. In Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, Jesus cleanses the leper. I won't read this because I know we don't have the time. I'm sure you guys, I know there's a party sometime today, so there'd be one angry little child if we don't get there on time, right? But chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Jesus cleanses the leper. Verses 5 through 13 
Jesus heals a faithful centurion servant. Verses 14 through 17, Jesus heals many, including Peter's mother-in-law, which I love that little detail, Peter's mother-in-law, because the Roman Catholic Church wants to say that, you know, the popes are to be celibate and not have a, a wife or anything, and they're, they're basing that off of what they think Peter was the first pope or so-called first pope, but he was married. Where do you get that idea from? You got to stick to the Bible, man. We got to stick to the Bible. Coming back to our teaching, in verses 18 through 22, Jesus explains the cost of following him. There's a cost to it. Oh, yeah. But there's a cost to everything. If you want to lose weight, there's certain foods you got to cut out. There's a lot of sweat you got to put into it, right? Or come out of you. There's a lot of work. Whatever we want to do, we earnestly want to do, there's a cost to it. So Jesus explains the cost of following him. Verses 23 through 27, Jesus calms the storm. Verses 28 through 34, Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. Coming to chapter 9, Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus heals a paralytic. Verses 9 through 13, Jesus calls Matthew to come follow him. Remember, Matthew was what? A tax collector. He took his share, right? He was a little devious. Verses 14 through 17, Jesus answers questions about fasting. Verses 18 through 26, Jesus restores a girl to life and heals a woman. Verses 27 through 31, Jesus heals two blind men. Verses 32 through 34, Jesus heals a mute man. And after doing all these things, we come now to verses 35 through 38, which we just read, where Jesus still has compassion after all that work. After doing all that, pouring himself out. I can imagine Jesus like about to take a seat, right? Ah, oh, man. And then he sees the crowds and he's like, nope, it's not me time. The word of God says that he still had compassion upon the people to still pray for them. And this leads directly to Matthew chapter 10 first verse where Jesus calls his disciples to him and gives them authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal people and then he sends them out it is the same word in Greek used here in Matthew chapter 10 uh, verse 1 exosia from Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus had that authority it's the same word, exosia, meaning the ability or strength with one, which one is endued, which he either possesses or exercises. We have that same authority. Do we exercise it? Do we put it into practice? We possess it. The Lord Jesus Christ himself has given us that authority. We possess it, but do we put it into exercise? Do we apply it practically in our lives? I pray that we do. And I pray that if we haven't been doing so, that perhaps after this teaching, we will be encouraged to do it more or to do it. Amen. And so with that, let us dive into today's passage. Verse 35 once again reads, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So our first point is the lame. 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 
The definition is being weak or ineffective. Or in today's society, when you call someone lame, it's because, you know, they're dorks or nerds or whatever they want to call people, right? At this time, I'm politically incorrect. I know that, but you're lame. You're not in the know, so to speak. You're an outcast. Well, we can apply that definition too. Because when, when we are lame or have a lame body part, we are it, are weak, are ineffective. It's not strong enough. It doesn't do the job the way that it's supposed to. And spiritually speaking, the relationship we try to have with God through religion is lame. It is weak or even worse, ineffective. When we don't know God through Jesus Christ, we are not in the know. We are lame. We are not in the know. So verse uh, 35 teaches about um, that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. And so what cities, what villages is the verse speaking of? Well, to find a little bit more about that, we would read Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And I'll read that for you all. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25 reads, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. That's a big region. I wish we had a map. I wish I would have had enough time to get a map together. But if you have a, a study Bible, you might have maps in the back, in the back of your study Bible. And it's a Palestine under Roman rule. That's probably the best map for it. And it shows Galilee, the Decapolis, Syria, um, Perea, which is south, east. And, and it shows the Sea of Galilee pretty much in the middle. And Jesus, during his ministry, he, he pretty much centered himself out of, um, off of the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he had access to all this land to go and walk and, and go and do his ministry. And it's amazing when you look at the map, it's amazing of how much territory he covered on foot, pretty much. You know, yeah, they had some animals, but, you know, they didn't have a nice vehicle with AC in it and all this other stuff. The terrain was rough, right? But that didn't stop him. And the amazing thing is, as we read these scriptures, that didn't stop the people from coming to him. It didn't stop the people from following after him. They followed him from one city to another region, from that region to another region. It was amazing. And yeah, technically people can argue that, well, they were just following him for a show, for a free handout. Okay. But there's some who their heart were really in it, and they followed him for who he was. But that part there, speaking of all those cities, um, he went through. So all that we have reviewed, all the chapter 8 and chapter 9, was really an in-depth description of these verses here in chapter 4. Chapter 4 pretty much tells us what chapter 9, 35, 38 is telling us again. But it kind of expands on that. It gives us a little more detail exactly what he did. And 
we went through those um, chapters right there. So he went through the region of Galilee, which had a population of about 300,000 people spread out in roughly 200 villages and cities, small towns. That's a lot of traveling. That's a lot of cities and towns just in one region to go and visit. 300,000 people. The Word of God tells us that if everything that Jesus did while he was here on the earth was written down, that there wouldn't be enough space to contain it. And when, when I was getting ready for this study, I was like, wow, that one region alone, 300,000 people, 200 cities and villages, that's not counting the, the, the Decapolis and all the other areas. That was a bunch of miracles. That's a bunch of work. Of course we wouldn't. We'd have volume after volume stacked upon each other of everything that Jesus did. It's amazing. He went to their synagogues because, of course, Christianity, or the way as it was first called, hadn't been established as a set-apart belief system yet. So people, even if they believed in Christ as Lord and Messiah, right, they still went to their synagogues. They still attended church, so to speak. And so Jesus knew this, so he goes there. He meets them where they're at. And Jesus not only met the believers, but he met with the non-believers, and then he met with the, the Hebrew believers where they congregated, and Gentile non-believers where they lived. He went to them. He went to where they lived. He also visited the Decapolis, or ten cities. It, it means ten cities. This was the region east and southeast of the Sea of Galilee, north of Perea. The names of these ten cities. Um, so we have Pliny, who was a Roman author, and we have Josephus, who was a Judo-Christian uh, historian. Kind of differ on the cities. They each have ten cities, but just one is different. So I hopefully will not butcher the names of these cities too much. But they have the cities as Scythopholis, Philadelphia, Raphine, Gardara, Hippos, Dios, Pella, Gersea, Canatha, and Damascus. Josephus um, replaces Canatha with Otopos. So either way, there's 10 cities. Jesus went to them all. And he did miracle after miracle, and, and he spoke to the people there. So again, when you look at the, the map of these regions, it's amazing to read how these people followed Jesus from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Just following Christ. Looking at the distance traveled, it amazes us. Looking at the terrain, I know Rome was in power, but Rome hadn't established roads in that region yet, or not all those regions yet. Rome was awesome, right, building roads. But they didn't have roads everywhere. The terrain was, was rough. There was lack of transportation. Maybe they'd have a pack animal or, or, or two or something to ride on, but, you know, it, it was pretty rough, and the roads were rough. And Jesus went through all these regions, villages, and towns, healing physical infirmities and teaching with authority. He knew they were not only physically, but spiritually lame. Their way of believing was weak and effective. If they knew word, they knew the word as the scribes. They just knew it. But they weren't applying the word to their lives. 
They, 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 weren't, they didn't know the authority behind the word. They didn't know the authority behind the word. They were not in the know. They did not know the God of the Bible. And this leads us to our second point, the lost. We'll read verse 36 once again. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were lost because they had a weak and ineffective relationship with God. And the ones who should have been leading them to the Lord, teaching them and instructing them, weren't doing their job. And so they were lame. And now because they were lame of of their walk with the Lord because of the weak and ineffectiveness of it, now they're lost. They're lost. They're left to their own devices, to their own belief systems, to their own way of thinking. And we all know when left to our own devices... We're horrible. Like we can really go off the deep end when left to our own devices. And that's exactly what's going on here. So they're lost. The definition of lost is beyond reach or attainment. Unable to find a way. As a man, I know men never get lost. Yeah, right. I remember driving to Louisiana and Steph's telling me, babe, I think we're going wrong. I think we're in, ah, I'm right, ah, whatever. And then I'm seeing a, a, a sign that we're entering some northern state. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. But I, I'm too prideful, or I was. Hopefully the Lord's really been working on me, and I know he has. And I stopped, and I was like, you go ask for directions. <laughs> so she did, thankfully, and then we got the right way to go. But we're lost, right? If I would have continued to go, I would have never reached or attained my goal of getting to my family in Louisiana. I wouldn't have. But here, the definition of loss is beyond reach or, or attainment. Unable to find a way. Without Jesus Christ, heaven is unattainable. It is. It's beyond our reach. We can't do it. No matter what we believe in, no matter what we think, no matter what our own devices, what, are, what we plot, what we, whatever we try to do, it's unattainable. There's no way. We're unable to find a way. We just can't do it. Jesus knew that they were lost in a bad way because their weak and ineffective faith had left them truly lost beyond reaching or attaining a relationship with God. The word says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. The compassion of Jesus is a repeated theme in the Gospel of Matthew. It is spoken of here in our teaching today. It is also spoken of in Matthew 14, 14, which reads, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. It's also found in Matthew 15, 32, which reads, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. People who don't know the word don't believe that God is a God of mercy and compassion. I know I didn't before coming to Christ. I thought God was some angry old man, grandfather type, you know, "Eh, get away from, you know, type thing. Not that Mike's like that, I'm sure. But that's what my picture of God was. This guy who was pretty much playing chess with my life. 
you know? I didn't realize that he's a God, a loving father, the perfect father who just loves me and has compassion upon me. I didn't realize that till I got into the word. And so without being in the word, we don't know this. We don't understand this, but we can read it in his word. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, the word of God reads, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God scattered you. Psalm 103.13 reads, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We, we know fear is meant in the way of reverence and awe, love, admiration. Not scared in the corner of him, but just reverence the Lord. And Isaiah 54, 8 reads, In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Beautiful scriptures. And very many more in the word of God. Showing and telling us that God is a God of mercy and compassion and love. If the Father and Son have compassion on their people, and we as believers of God, as followers of Christ, try to live as much as possible as Christ, then it is safe to say that we are to show compassion to those in need as well. It's safe to say that. As a matter of fact, let me share some scriptures where the Lord is admonishing us to do so. Just to help us understand, the word admonish means to indicate duties or obligations to. To let us know what's expected of us, pretty much, right? So, in Colossians 3.12, the word of God reads, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Put on. I have a few of those. Again, I'm not bragging, but like patience, man, I need to put on more of that. A lot more. You know, I, I'm grateful for the work that the Lord's doing in my life, and I know I'm compassionate now compared to what I was. But, but there's a lot more of that that I need to put on. I don't wear cologne, but because I'm a, not because I like to stink or anything, but I'm allergic to it. But anyway, but I can imagine. Some guys that I know that I work with, they like bathe in cologne. And I'm j I just get the picture like, we need to bathe in this. We need to put this on in that manner. We need to put on holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bathe ourselves in that. The world needs it. The world needs it. Philippians 2.4 reads, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's a tough one. Look to the interests of others. That we get the picture of God. God, Jesus died on the cross. He wasn't worried about his own self. He could have taken himself off of that cross. 
but he cared. He looked to the interests of others. Jesus is such a perfect example of this. Hanging on that cross, in pain, dying, and he looks to the interest of others. He looks for his mom to be tended to. It's amazing. It's amazing. Hanging on that cross between those two criminals. And the one, unfortunately, was a non-believer, but the one was a believer. He came to faith in Christ on that cross. And Jesus tended to his interest. In the middle of all that pain and suffering, what an amazing God we have. What an amazing example of being interested in others, of helping and seeking and looking to help others. What an amazing example. Jude 1, 21 through 23. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Where? In the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Have mercy on those who doubt. Don't hate back on those who hate you. The word doesn't say that. It says have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy. The religious leaders of the time had failed in their responsibility of being shepherds and the people were lost. I wanted to share this, this description of a shepherd that I found. And it goes like this. A shepherd was responsible for watching out for enemies trying to harm or steal the sheep. He was also responsible for defending the sheep from attackers. Another responsibility was he would heal the wounded and sick sheep. And then he would find and save lost or trapped sheep, loving them, sharing in their lives. The shepherds lived amongst their sheep out in the pasture. They lived amongst their sheep, earning their trust. Let me ask you, isn't that a beautiful description of what our Lord and Savior Jesus came and did and continues to do so? It truly is. He did all that and so much more. And he continues to do that. In the text, Jesus had compassion on the people, right? The Greek word his, the Greek word here is uh, splagonizomai. <laughs> that was a fun word trying to practice. It means to be moved to one's bowels. We must remember in the Hebrew culture, the bowels were the home base of emotions. This was their belief. The, the, the bowels, the inner person here, the bowels here, the organs were the, the home base of the emotions. And so we could probably say something like this. It made me sick to the pit of my stomach. That's probably something we would say today. Watching them interact made me sick to my stomach. Watching them, you know, just, oh, I can't sleep because I'm just so worried about my family in Oakland. I can't, I can't eat properly. It just makes you sick. It makes you worried. You get headaches, right? You, you're, just, you're, just, you're just stressed over it. And that's the word here. 
It means to be moved with concern to one's bowels. Jesus was moved. He was uneasy about their situation. Oh, well, that's their fault. He didn't say that. They should have done better in school. He didn't say that. Oh, they look of a good young age. They can work. He didn't say that. I'm too busy. He didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't say any of that. He was moved. He was uneasy about their situation. He was distressed about the people and where they were in, how they were lost. The verse continues with the, with the description of the state the people were in. They were harassed, the word of God says. In the Greek, it is the word skilo. It means to rend, mangle, to vex, trouble, annoy, to give one's self trouble or to trouble oneself. These leaders did all this. They tore property away from widows. They swindled them out of it. They mangled the word of God to their advantage. They vexed, troubled, and annoyed the people with hypocritical actions. And they placed their convictions upon the people. The people were also helpless. In the Greek, it's the word crypto. It means to cast, throw down. Take someone and throw them down. And then keep them there. Maybe put your foot on their back. It means to cast them down, to throw them down. That's what the word means, helpless in the Greek. Crypto, to cast down. They were weighted down already because they were under Roman, Roman rule, Roman law. They already had that weight. Plus, they even had the weight of their own sin. That was another added weight upon their lives. And then they had these shepherds who should have been shepherds coming and imposing more weight upon them, more things upon them. These, these shepherds should have led them properly to God. They should have been praying with them, earnestly teaching them, encouraging them with the word, helping them with the word. What did they do instead? They just added to their plight with impossible rules and taxes upon taxes, just to name a few. They were not shepherds at all. In the Greek, the word for shepherd is poimen. I didn't know that that word meant that. I've heard that word before. I didn't know it meant that. There's a ministry called Poimen Ministries. And after I knew the definition, I was like, oh, that's very cool. Pastor Joe, when he retires, he wants to go into this ministry. And what they do is when a church um, possibly has their senior pastor go down or, or is out or whatever, they step in and teach and lead the church while, you know, he gets well or, or whatever the situation is. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. They're like shepherds of shepherds. They're like a pastor's pastor. And that's what their ministry is about. It's pretty cool. Anyway, coming back to this, Poiman, 
disappointment. It means he to whose care and control others have committed themselves and whose precepts they follow. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if Jesus, if you call Jesus your shepherd, then this is what must be going on. Then we have accepted the care and control. We have committed ourselves under his care and control. Control, key word. Because we all want to be under his care. But when it comes to being under his control, that's where we're like, eh. But we have committed ourselves to be under his care and control. And we should, right, whose precepts they follow. We should follow the precepts that the Lord has instructed us with, has given us. So Jesus recognized that the people were unable to find the way because of the lack of poimen, because of the lack, lack of shepherds, the lack of laborers. And so with that, we come to our third point, the laborers. And I'll reread verses 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The definition of, of a laborer is a person with specified skills who works as a professional, skilled, semi-skilled, unskilled worker, or one who does. Now, I dare say we all fit into one of those categories. Some of us are professionals, and great. Some of us are semi-professionals, and that's awesome too. Some of us have some skill, or if you're like me, I have no skill. And I always tell the brothers at church when they want to, like, redecorate or redo a room, I'm like, I can't help you put it up, but man, can I help you take it down? Because I love, you know, give me a sledge and I'll knock that wall down. I love it. I'll take care of that. Because it really takes no skill, because I don't have any. But I dare say that that description fits us all, amen? We're either professional, skilled, semi-skilled, unskilled, or one who just does. One who just does. The ministry of helps, right? One who just does. And so that's a laborer. So Jesus tells his disciples that many are ready to receive the good news of the kingdom. The harvest is plentiful. And in this day and age, the same is still true. The harvest is plentiful. There's people grasping for anything and everything out there. There's a real hunger for, they don't understand, but the word of God. There's a real hunger for God out there. They're just trying to put anything in there. They're trying to fill that hole with anything of the world. And they don't know that it's God that's missing. And so we need to share that with them. We need to um, let them know that. So Jesus tells his disciples that many are ready to receive the good news of the kingdom. It should encourage them. It should encourage them. It should encourage us. Many are ready to receive the good news of the kingdom. But the poymen, the shepherds, the workmen, the laborers are few. It wasn't a matter of not having shepherds, but they had idle shepherds. They were there. They were just all about their self-interest. They didn't care for the needs of the people. They wanted to get out of the people what they could get. And what a horrible, horrible way of shepherding people. 
They had no compassion. They had no mercy. They had no love for the people. I can't imagine that now as a pastor. I'm a youth pastor. I don't, I don't know if Mike shared that. I, I'm a youth pastor at our church. And last night we went to uh, the Hondo Corn Maze. And we had a pretty good group, about 16, I think, went. And I just love watching them play and interact. They're out there on the swings, out there on the slides, running through the corn maze, getting lost, yelling, playing, laughing, just loving on each other in Christ. I love seeing what God is doing in their lives. And I can't imagine as a pastor, as a shepherd, not having that compassion and that love for those people that the Lord has entrusted you with. I can't imagine that. I can't. The people desired good preaching, but there were few good preachers. There was a great deal of work to be done, but hands were needed to get it done. The multitudes needed instruction, wanted instruction, and thus that's why Jesus said the harvest was ripe for gathering. They wanted it. They were hungry for it, just like in today's time. They don't know what they're hungry for, but they know they're hungry for something, and it's the gospel. It's the gospel. The word continues, right? It says, but the labors are few. In the Greek, the word for few is oligos. It means, yes, small in number, but it also means small in time and intensity. So it's not so much that there weren't enough shepherds. It's that they weren't invested. They didn't give time. They didn't give of themselves. They didn't give time to the people. They didn't make time for the people. There was no intensity there. My voice cracks and I'll shed tears. And not because I'm trying to put on a show, but because I know what God's done in my life. And again, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to lift myself up. if, If I'm boasting on anything, it's the Lord, what he's done in my life. And I want to share with people what he's done with me. So trust me when I tell you, I get the time and I get the opportunity to pray or to share with you and there's going to be some intensity coming out of me. I might get a little loud. My wife will have to like rein me back in, you know. She'll grab me by the shoulder, by the hand or whatever. But that's just what God's done in my life. But these guys, they didn't have that time. They weren't giving of that time. They weren't making time and there was no intensity for the people They had no skin in the game. They had no personal investment in the organization or undertaking of the calling upon their lives and therefore had no vested interest in its success. They had no interest in the success of the gospel. Therefore, right, and then the word continues in uh, verse 38 begins with therefore, and that word brings attention to us. To what has come before it. Because the harvest is physically and spiritually weak and ineffective, and because they are unable to find their way, Jesus says, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to compel workers into his harvest to reap it. Pray earnestly. In the Greek, earnestly, the word is diomai, 
It means to ask, beg, desire, beseech. How many times do we pray earnestly? I'll be straight up honest. I know we pray earnestly when we ourselves are sick. I know we pray earnestly when our children are sick. I know we pray earnestly when our spouses are sick. I know we pray earnestly in those situations, circumstances. But how many times do we pray earnestly for the lost? I dare say, I, I, I know, I'll admit it. I fail at that many times. But here Jesus is saying to pray earnestly, to beg, to desire, to beseech God for the harvest, for the lost, for, for the workers, for everything. To pray for them. It is very interesting that the words send out are used here in, in the verse, right? It says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. <clears throat> Some translation is truly lost in English. In the Greek, send out, it is ekabello. Ekbello. I love this definition. Because applying this definition to the scripture, mind blown. It'll help you understand and see this in a different manner. Ekbello means to cast out, drive out, to send out, to compel one to depart in stern, though not violent language. So send out loses some of that translation there. In the Greek, it's ekbello. Cast out. Almost like when it's time for your... I don't know when ours is going to leave, but when it's time for our children to leave the home and you're like, okay... Go. You've done all you said you wanted to do. You've finished college. You've got a job. You've, okay, go. And you do it in a non violent, hopefully, non violent manner. <laughs> but it's stern, like, hey, remember, you, you said by this time, okay, hey, right? And so some translation is lost there. But If we read that again, it says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to compel one to depart, to be driven out into his harvest. Well, it sheds a little different light on it, doesn't it? Pray, Lord, send me. I dare you, pray that. Pray that. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to compel me compel one to depart to be driven out into his harvest jesus said this to his disciples who were to be employed as laborers are you and i not his disciples as well we certainly are we must pray this prayer honestly and earnestly if we do perhaps we will hear him telling us you go into the harvest you Go into the harvest. Oh, but Lord, I don't know how to talk. You go into the harvest. Oh, but Lord, I'm scared. You go into the harvest. Oh, Lord, but I have no skill. You go into the harvest. Stern, but nonviolent language. You 
go into the harvest. And so let's pray this earnestly and honestly. And perhaps we'll hear him tell us that. You go into the harvest. In Isaiah 6, 8, the word of God says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah answers, right? Because the verse continues and he says, Then I said, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. When the Lord commissions us in answer to our prayers, we can be assured it will be successful. If this is what you're praying for, if you've been praying, Lord, show me. Lord, help me. Lord, give me direction. Lord, point it out to me. I'm a dumb man, Lord. I, I, me, personally, speaking of myself, I'm not very bright. Show me what to do, how to do it. I don't know how to do this, but I want to. Show me. God will show you. God has shown me and he continues to show me. He will show us if we pray this earnestly and honestly. We, we, when the Lord commissions us in our prayers, we can be assured it will be successful. As we get to, we're, we're getting close to finishing here. In Acts 9-11, Paul had just been knocked off his high horse. Well, he was still Saul. Uh, Saul was knocked off his high horse, right? And he was blinded. And he was sitting in this man's house, and the man's name was Judas. And Paul was praying there. And I wish I was sitting next to Paul like, to, see, to hear what he was saying, how he was praying. Because he was probably praying for the first time ever, like for real. He was probably praying for the first time earnestly. And not because so much he was blind, but because, and this is going to sound funny, but because he had finally seen who God is in his life. And so I can imagine Paul sitting there just like, Lord, whatever you want to do, Father, guide me, lead me. Whatever you want me to do, just you do it. You show me. You lead me. You strengthen me. You do what you want to do. I'm yours. That's it. I'm all in. I'm going to do it. Just lay it out for me. Show me. I don't, you know, if it's one step at a time, then that's the one step I'll take at a time. And so Acts 9.11 says, and the Lord said to him, rise. He's talking to Ananias, right? And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he was praying something earnestly to get God's attention. Was he not? He had to have been. He was pouring his heart out. Pouring his heart out. Like I said, I dare say that was probably the first time that Paul had ever really truly prayed to God. I know he knew the word, okay? I know that. I know he knew scripture, but he was earnestly praying to God. It got the attention of God, right? And we continue with Acts 9.15, just a few verses down. Again, this is speaking to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was praying a pretty earnest prayer. And I'm sure somewhere in that prayer he said, Lord, I'm yours. I'm all yours. Use me however you want to. And God said, perfect. I've got the perfect job for you. I've got it. Here it is. And he sent Ananias to go pray over him so that he would regain his sight. 
Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord. Paul felt compelled to go out before Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites. They were both believers and followers of God. They prayed, were commissioned, and went out. Here in Matthew, Jesus is speaking to his believers. He is speaking to those who have skin in the game. Those who know what they have received was not attainable through anyone or anything else but Jesus. I know we all know that in here. I pray that we have had revelation of that divine insight. I know, I know that I know that I know that I know I could have never saved myself. I know I could have never have delivered myself from the anger, the depression, the suicidal thoughts, everything, everything ever I've gone through. I know the drug addiction. I know, I know I could have never done it, never. I went to AA meetings. I went to all kinds of stuff trying to help myself, and I would abstain from stuff for 30 days, whatever, and be right back at it. I know I couldn't do it without God. I know that what I have received was only attainable through my Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples knew that. Jesus is telling them this is how you reap the harvest. Pray earnestly. This is how you reap that harvest. Pray earnestly. He didn't say pray for more workers. He said pray earnestly. Pray for your strength, for ideas how to reach them, for opportunities, for effective labors. We have the labors in place. Pray that they be effective. Pray for compassionate people. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. It is his harvest. He will bring the increase. We must do our part, yes, but he will cause the increase. It's like planting a seed. We don't make that seed grow. I don't care what you do. You can water it, put fertilizer, you can tend to it, you can block stuff off, cover it from the, sh- from the sun, give it shade. You can make sure nothing comes and eats it. You don't mow over that section. You can do all that stuff. But if God doesn't give the increase, it won't grow. It won't grow. Or you can just toss it there and then it grows. You're like, I didn't even tend to that thing. It's not you. It's not us. God brings the increase. We just have to do our part in faith. We just have to do our part in faith. He will cause the increase. Remember who our poimen is, the good shepherd. Remember who or unto who we have committed our control and care to. Remember who, whose precepts we follow. Jesus, if we have done all that, then we have skin in the game. Jesus has given us authority to heal the lame, to reach the lost, and to be the laborers. Amen? He truly has. And I'll finish with this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. We have the authority. We have the authority. We need to get out there. We need to have compassion. We need to have a heart for the lost because 
remember, someone had compassion for us when we were lost. I remember sitting at the age of 15 on a bus stop, and I don't know where this brother's at. He may be with the Lord right now. But I remember sitting on that bus stop, mad at the world, and this guy, this dude just sits across from me on the other side of the bench. And he's looking at me and he smiles. And I, I'm ready to get up and just whoop on him. Like, that, that's just where I was at at that time. And I said, in very colorful language, what are you looking at? And I, there's a lot of stuff I am leaving out, okay? Y'all can put that in there. I said, what are you looking at? And he just very simply said, Jesus loves you. And I cussed him a few more times, and that was it. And then his bus came, and he left. And I never saw that guy again. And I didn't come to Christ that night. I didn't come to Christ till like six years later. But you know, I'll never forget the compassion of that man. I'll never forget how he didn't care he wasn't scared. He wasn't put off by my language. He, you know what I mean? He, he had mercy for me. And he had skin in the game. He knew what God had done in his life, and he just wanted to share it. And he very simply told me, Jesus loves you. And I, I can honestly tell you that my hunger for the Lord, my interest in God, was honestly started that day. I still did all I did. Don't get me wrong. But 2 a.m. in the morning as I'd lay somewhere awake and I would think, what did that guy mean? What did he mean? So I pray wherever that guy's at, hopefully the Lord's still using him in an awesome manner, right? But we have skin in the game. Jesus has given us authority to heal the lame, reach the lost, and be the laborers. He has bought us at a price. We are not our own. We have skin in the game, amen? I would like to thank you for taking time to listen to our broadcast. This is uh, Pastor Michael Petit from Calvary Chapel, Divine, Texas. If you're someone like me who is, uh, listens to a lot of podcasts, you can also listen to us on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Audible, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Pretty much wherever you can find a podcast, just type in Calvary Chapel uh, Divine and you'll you'll be able to track us down. And lastly, I just wanted to invite you out to church. Uh, we are a casual church that meets in a non-traditional building, uh, meaning that we meet at the VFW 3966 on West College Avenue, big white building right next to the the post office. Uh, if you want to get more information about our church, if you need to ask uh, some questions or you even need prayer, just go to calvarydivine.org. And uh, we want to thank you again just for listening to this broadcast of Calvary Chapel Divine Texas, Sun, Salt, and Light Radio. God bless you. Have a good one.